This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast, which only contains 1% of the swear words used in Dominic Cummings' WhatsApps. I'm Jacob Jarvis. On today's show, Boris Johnson is haunted by the ghost of Brexit past as his former chief advisor lets rip during the COVID inquiry. Plus, the FT's Peter Foster joins us to discuss his book, What Went Wrong With Brexit? Other than pretty much everything, of course. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, it's a year since Elon Musk bought Twitter. In that time, he's changed its name, sacked hundreds of its workers and slashed its value. Should we have expected anything more? Without further ado, let's meet the panel. First up, it's commentator and actor Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hi, Jov. Alex, Keir Starmer is facing increased scrutiny over his stance around Israel and Gaza. What did you make to the speech he gave at Chatham House this week? Um, I mean, I thought it was broadly the right kind of balance. Um, look, it's, I mean, it's really difficult. I haven't uh, spoken about this uh, since two weeks ago when... when it first sort of all happened. And I think it's it's sort of brought out the worst in British politics mm. in a in a weird way. It's sort of the binary nature of it, a failing to understand that more than one thing can be true at the same time. That uh, you know, an inability to shift between thinking who's the good guy and who's the bad guy to put things in contest. The media's propensity to filter everything through bubblegum narratives like, there's a row engulfing the Labour Party, which has ended up in the ludicrous position that the, the, the Labour stance on Israel is tested more extens- extensively than the government's fucking yeah. stance on Israel. No one is asking the government, as far as I can see, is that still right? Do you want to move away from that now that X, Y, and Z is happening? But also, I think a, a lack of imagination in thinking of Labour as a government in waiting, actually, and the, and the hard, merciless edges of realpolitik. I mean, what is the aim of Labour saying at this point, Israel is engaging in, in war crimes? Will Israel take any notice? No. Will it poison the possible future relationship of a Prime Minister Starmer with Israel? Yes. Who is the UK's key ally in that area? Is it Hamas? Is it Iran? You know, what do you gain by antagonizing Israel in a moment of supreme anger? The answer is nothing. All you can do is keep the lines of communications open so that you do exactly what Blinken is doing and exactly what Starmer is doing, which is nudge Israel inch by inch from a position of anger and retribution to a position of rational policy. That is all you can do. And I think that is what Starmer is doing. And people need to grow up. 
Zoe Grunewald is policy and politics correspondent at The New Statesman. Hello, Zoe. Hello. So you were recently asked on The New Statesman podcast, uh, when you're a centrist politician, how do you choose one party or the other? What conclusion did you come to on that point? So I was I asked a uh, one nation moderate, in inverted commas, Conservative MP this question because we were having a conversation about whether the moderates would rise again within the Conservative <laughs> Party. And I asked them, you know, why is it that you're a Conservative? Because a lot of the things you're talking about, actually, you, you sound almost more aligned to Labour at the minute. Did you have to do a new question because the first answer was no? Yeah, we still had some time left. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically, they said to me, one of the things that they think makes them more Conservative is their love of tradition. So they were talking about their love of the monarchy, their love of the House of Lords, or then they then did talk about how they did want to see some reform to the House of Lords as well. Um, And they also talked about the fact that ultimately they see business and low taxation as, you know, a good good thing. But for them, on on the sort of centre of the Conservative Party, they want to see the state looking after people first, whereas I think they they think those on the right of the party tend to think lower taxation (laughs) and then the people look after themselves. I then asked them why they weren't a Lib Dem and they sort of looked at me incredulously and said, well, I'm just not a Lib Dem. So um, I'm none the wiser. I tend to think that maybe if you're a centrist politician, you might be more likely to join the Conservative Party because you might have a slightly better shot at being in government one day, just in terms of probability. And tradition, of course, as you said. So bunting, we can blame centrist (laughs) Tories, essentially. Exactly. Our guest this week is the public policy editor of the Financial Times and author of the new book, What Went Wrong with Brexit and What We Can Do About It. Peter Foster, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Peter, you recently wrote about Towns Funds. Do you have hopes that these can do very much beyond the, as it was described, temporary prettification of areas? No, not really. You know, I mean, towns need money. Uh, you know, the, the, that fund was giving 55 towns 20 million quid each to spend over uh, uh, 10 years at 1.1 billion. And the idea, the difference was that it would be spent by these towns' boards. So, you know, there's a slightly kind of nasty bit in there where Sunak said, we're not going to give it to these politicians who keep failing you. We're going to give it to uh, these towns' boards, local people can tell you how to spend it. You know, like so much of policy and politics at the moment, it, it it so completely misses the point, right? If you go to towns in this country, what you see is the result of a decade of austerity, 30% mm. real terms budget cuts. So the town I went to for that report, Hastings, one of the things that the town's fund's supposed to address is antisocial behaviour. Well, since local governments had their budgets cut under austerity, you look at the level of youth services provision, Right, it's disappeared. Mm. Non-statutory mm. services, service that you councils don't have to do, and right now councils are literally only doing exactly what they have to do. Councils if that <laughs> well, if that, and so the, actually Hastings Council, like a lot of councils, also in the middle of a housing crisis, a thousand people in temporary housing, which is ridiculously expensive. So there was a youth centre in a ward in Hastings that had um, that's closed. It's only open three nights a week. And in that youth centre is an amazing recording studio that was opened by Fergal Sharkey in 2011. You can find the cutting on the BBC. Guess what? No one uses it. There's no staff. There's no money to do it. So then when you go and talk to people on the estate where they are, what do people say? Oh, the kids, they're drilling drugs. They're setting bin fires. Mm. Well, that's because they finished school and they've got nothing to do. So, you know, it's just absolutely you know, completely tries to paper over the reality of actually the country is suffering from 
a decade and a half of chronic underinvestment, a chronic lack of productivity, a chronic lack of economic growth, and bunging 55 towns, 20 million quid each is really besides the point. Before we start, we've got a quick update from Alex to uh, to announce some news. Our Christmas live show is now on sale to everyone. So venite, venite. (laughs) Ros Dorian and me will be joined by friend of the pod and LBC host James O'Brien at the Comedy Store in London's West End. Patreon backers already got this announcement earlier this week, but it's not too late to get tickets with an exclusive member discount. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to find out how. As well as the discount, you'll get this podcast early and add free plus extra shows and merchandise. I'm very glad we got you to read that instead of me, Alex. It was much, much more sparkling. (laughs) (laughs) The COVID inquiry took an explicit turn this week as Dominic Cummings joined those giving evidence. If Boris Johnson was an out-of-control shopping trolley, then it appears the government was being run like a chaotic game of supermarket sweep. The people in charge weren't in charge, all hated each other, and the PM was passing the book quicker than he could launch a rugby ball back in his uni days. Alex, the week has been full of bombshell quotes, with Dominic Cummings calling cabinet ministers useless fuck pigs, morons, <laughs> and worse. I'm gonna I'm gonna rule out the C the C word for, for this one. Oh Ian Dunn. <laughs> We're thinking of you, mate. Does the tone of these conversations though tell you really as much as the content? In some ways more. I mean, culture shock, I think, was the intended result. And the other thing that's extraordinary is that they thought they had time for this. I I was really struck by by something Martin Reynolds, Party Marty, (laughs) said on Monday when he was giving evidence. And he said, uh, and I quote, we were looking at a five or ten year horizon. So basically the pandemic caught them at their floppiest possible moment. They had just got Brexit done. They had just won that election with a huge majority. Mm. They were going on corporate jollies and planning what grand things they were going to do with the country. And I think quite busy patting themselves on the back. And it was the worst possible moment. It And it, it was that culture shock they were, you know, Coming style was very much just come in and kick stuff over and see what happens. Yeah, this yeah, that sort of personal brashness and ego is what I find yeah. so so and jarring. Is that as unknown if, unknown? Yeah, that that's the reason you can't fucking do that when you're in number yeah. ten. You know, because that unknown unknown might happen at any moment. And as if they considered that celebrating an election win kind of disregarded the state the country was in at that point due to governments wrung by their their peers as well. Things weren't exactly great when they came into power in the first place. Basically. It's quite strange. Mm. How do you feel watching Cummings, though, and what stood out most to you from other than the the bizarre swear words he, he threw about? What stood out? I, I, so I will answer those in reverse. What, what stood out to me is the sheer just nonchalant disregard with which people viewed the governance of a country of 65 million people. Cummings was challenged on the fact that he knew perfectly well that Johnson was unsuited to leading the country, both in essentials and in temperament. And still he supported, enabled, got him elected, elevated him to that position. Why? Because the alternative was apparently a second referendum in a Labour government. 
So, and this is his quote, we decided to roll the dice. Just the casual nature with which they decided to play with people's fate. I, I just find it astonishing, astonishing. And the way he pushed him forward, not only by getting him there, but the, the narrative he built around Boris Johnson as well is something, you know, this idea that he was someone who was a team builder and might be slightly useless himself. But don't but, worry, when he's in yeah. power, he'll get the right people in and he'll rally them up in that way. Because which the, just... the subtext is that I will be managing him. Yeah. You know, he's an idiot. He just wants to be in that position. He doesn't actually want to govern. So he'll be in that position and I'll do the governing. But for two people who for many, many years have labored under the misapprehension that they are the smartest person in the room and have huge egos, how long would it be before they were in the same room and started questioning whether the other one was smarter (laughs) and started measuring their dicks? I mean, the answer is a, a matter of months. So Lee Kane was also was also spoken to. He's sort of been subsumed by Dominic Cummings. I, I thought at his, his point. evidence was better, to be honest, mm. juicier in many ways. But he said that you know, Boris Johnson, the pandemic was the wrong crisis for his skill set. <laughs> I mean, what exactly is the right crisis for his skill set? And also, since when did prime ministers get to pick the crisis? That was the quote of the day, I think, that this was the wrong crisis for this Prime Minister's skill set. I don't know what crisis. I mean, is there one that requires indecision, immorality, lying? He'd be quite good at that. But we still got the spectacle of his proxies going out there to defend him. Mm. You know, Gitto Harry, presumably still paying off his knighthood, suggested that others, meaning him, have managed Johnson better and have managed to, and I quote, tease out decisions from him. And like, if you need a nanny, you shouldn't be PM. No. You know, (laughs) we needn't, and Nadine Dorries seeing the inquest into a quarter of a million deaths as a sort of marketing opportunity and tweeting, (laughs) to find out what really happened, buy my book. No, mate. If you knew what really (laughs) happened, you'd be giving evidence to the inquiry. You wouldn't be writing an unauthorized fan fiction of Johnson, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't pretend to be as learned on Tory history as Boris Johnson, but I came across this Margaret Thatcher quote where she said that being a prime minister is a lonely job and really it it ought to be. I've probably butchered that slightly, but that's what, teasing out decisions, it's no, you should be on your own to an extent making those decisions. That's kind of the point. It's kind of, you know, the first line on that particular job description is (laughs) (laughs) self-motivated. Or just the word prime. I mean, <laughs> this kind of yeah. says it all, doesn't it? So it seems like Spads working under Johnson didn't just hate him, but other ministers they worked with, and also in some cases, each other. But then according to <laughs> Cummings, the Spads were also running the entire show. Is it becoming increasingly hard to apportion blame beyond just saying, we know what Boris Johnson was at the top, and therefore he should get it all? But then unfortunately, there are other layers of people. So mm. it's practically, how do you... How do you manage that? Well, I think it goes back to what Alex says. If you're the prime minister, it's your job to manage things and make those decisions. Now, absolutely, there is, in the civil service, SPADs, senior civil servants, uh, members, staff, all of them, to some degree, their skill set has to involve a degree of people management. So 
if you are a SPAD or a senior civil servant, you will have to deal with several different ministers who all have diff- slightly different working styles. They like to receive their information in a certain way. Sometimes they might that might be great and you might work really well together. Sometimes it might be much more difficult. But part of your job is to manage that and to adapt a little bit to their style. So I do think there are questions, and we saw that when Martin Reynolds was giving evidence, about when was Johnson told things? Why was there a blackout of emails at certain points when arguably the virus was getting more severe across the world? Was he told how bad things were? Of course, we need to ask those questions. We need to ask where the civil service might have have failed in Mm. certain respects. But at the end of the day, the fish rots from the head in that the leader, the prime minister, the the head of department, whoever it is, sets the tone for how that department operates. You set the precedent for how you want to be communicated with. And if ultimately, if you're not listening to the advice from your advisors or from your civil servants, then there is an issue there and it belongs to you. It doesn't belong to them. There's only, you know, the, the, this is the, the, the political... Uh, players in this are elected, they ultimately have the power. So civil servants, spads, they can only do so much and then eventually it's up to the minister to decide whether they're going to listen. Absolutely, we need to look at all of it. We need to look at the advice that was given by external parties as well, you know, by scientific advisors, things like that. But ultimately, of course, the buck does stop with Johnson and previous prime ministers, previous ministers who left the country and public services in such a state that they weren't able to cope. David Cameron, George Osborne, who presided over um, austerity, the the ministers who presided over the pandemic preparedness test. All of these people have things to answer for because ultimately they were making the decisions at the time. And I thought Helen McNamara, who gave evidence on Wednesday when we're recording, I thought she made a really good point actually on this. She said this is not just some bit of procedurology, you know, they are the people who are accountable. The reason you go to them and you present the options and they need to agree this stuff is not some sort of yes, Minister Humphrey-esque manipulation. They need to make that choice because they are the ones that will be up in the House of Commons explaining it. They're the ones that will take the flag come the next election. And so I think that blurring of the lines was really lethal, Mm. really lethal. This notion that I I don't like making decisions, so you make them. For for so many civil servants and um, public servants who work with elected people, right, they will tell you that the majority of the frustration in their job is trying to get a member to take something seriously or trying to get them to drop something that they don't think is important. But they don't have to deal with the political context as well. No. So there are reasons, other reasons that aren't just policy based or, or following the science that Johnson will have made certain decisions. And I'm sure we'll come to that. We'll talk about the influence of his backbenchers. Um, but, you know, if you're a good civil servant, you're also aware of that. And you can only do as much as you can do until eventually the buck no longer stops with you. No. So... Absolutely. I think that the blurring of those lines, the clearly the fact that Johnson needed to have his hand held so much and needed people to get in his way and say nothing goes through anyone else except me anymore. I mean, that's when it gets, that's when the question is, how did Johnson allow this to happen? I mean, there are messages where, where the, the, the advisors and the civil servants are telling each other, you have to brief him like five minutes before he comes into the room. Otherwise... He's winging it. Otherwise, yeah. he forgets the information or someone else has spoken to him and he's changed say, his mind. Having been 
a civil servant and a parliamentary clerk is not that uncommon. <laughs> Some members have really ridiculous, yeah. but then they are really busy. So it's yeah. just, you know, you have to learn how you deal with that that member and sometimes you might work together very well and sometimes you might not. No, yes, I'm... but most of, because I've also been a civil servant and most of them, I think, have some kind of internal rational structure which pushes them mm -hmm. to the same answer each time. So, and I think the lack of that, that, conf that internal confusion which meant he went for a different answer each time is what causes <laughs> that such huge difficulties. And all the politicians have to be on TikTok now as well, and we know what that does <laughs> to everyone's attention span. It, it wrecks it completely. Peter, you've been watching this sort of thing for a long while. Have you any, Have you ever seen anything quite like what is going on? I mean, Dominic Cohen's the content of it. Has ever... Well, on one, level, on one level, we've been watching it for a while, haven't we? I think, I think a number of things. The first thing to say is that the pandemic was really complicated. Mm. So Lee Kane said it wasn't good fit for this prime minister. It would have challenged any prime minister. You know, if, if the Ukraine war had happened first, that would have suited Boris Johnson quite nicely, right? Nice manichaean, black and white, you know, uh, 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 approach to to a crisis. This was a deeply complicated crisis. And by the way, for all the noise about the way the civil servants and the politicians grinded against each other, there was no plan. Helen McNamara ends mm. up saying, you know, actually, there's a lot of pre-Brexit no-deal planning. But when they got to the bit, you know, they opened the file which said what happens in a pandemic, there was no plan, mm. right? So it wasn't just the politicians. I think it happened at a really unfortunate moment. So if you think of just of the electoral cycles, 2010 was hung, 2015, a very narrow Tory majority, 2017 hung again. You've just won an 80-90 seat majority. You've just got Brexit done. You could be forgiven for thinking that you walked on water, right? And the thing that kind of comes through about all this is just that, remember the Misfits memo from Dominic Cummings, right? Yeah. The kind of moonshottery. I remember my own reporting during the pandemic, you know, when there weren't enough ventilators, before everyone started using these CPAP machines and we needed enough ventilators. What did they do? They had a kind of Brexit, you know, a plows to plow rifles to plowshares type a competition to build a ventilator, which was kind of this kind of moonshot culture that was uniquely unsuited to managing probably the most complex political and public challenge this country's faced since the war, right? Yeah. I mean, any prime minister would have struggled with that. The kind of moonshot approach that they approached everything with, brushing away, you know, listen to Helen McNamara talking about how, you know, they really didn't want to do How hard can it be? That's, that is literally how I would sum up the approach. I mean, how hard can it be mm. to build a ventilator? It, it felt like so, a sort of Silicon Valley tech startup yeah, and, trying and, to... And I'm afraid, that. you know, they just came absolutely slap bang, bosh, into into reality. And and it would, as I say, would have challenged any any government. And it was it was uniquely unfortunate, I think. That yeah, it wouldn't it have challenged any government in the same way, I don't think, though. Be because the other thing Helen McNamara said was that what she saw is that, you know, a lot of politicians present this bullishness outwards. But she was shocked to find out that they kind of believed this stuff. They drunk their own, their own Kool-Aid. Yeah, so I, in internal meetings where you expect people to be slightly more reflective, they were still going, we're so going to smash we, this thing probably on come head. on to the kind of corrosion of the British state and policymaking, right? And some of that mm. does go back to the dreaded B word. Uh, it goes back to the culture war. You know, I was a, you know, I was a foreign correspondent. I spent the best part of 15 years in India, China, Washington, after the Middle East after 9-11 and, and, and the Iraq war. 
And I came back in 2015 and I'd been reporting on the United States, what you know, the Conservative Political Action Conference, the Tea Party, the rise of Donald Trump, et cetera. And I just hadn't appreciated in some respects how far down the tracks the UK's polity had gone. And so the machinery that Helen McNamara is talking about trying to operate was already under immense strain because of what had happened with Brexit and what had happened, you know, what that had done in creating problems between the civil servants and the politicians. And that's another layer, you know, of like, this was not the moment to have a coronavirus pandemic for which we'd not prepared. We'd prepared for a flu pandemic. All the PPE was wrong, all the stockpiling was wrong, all the, play, all the game plans were wrong. Yeah. Not to conflate issues too much, but is this worth looking at in the the wider context of policymaking as well? You know, we're seeing this you know, the way that the COVID crisis was handled, and it obviously took precedence. But other aspects of public life must have been hurt by how how much this government was malfunctioning. Well, I mean, I think it consumed everything, didn't it? The, the pandemic for, for, for that time, it, it, there wasn't a lot of policymaking going on. Mm. You know, we were literally in survival mode. And and, and McNamara is again right. You know, there was some pressure, some questioning in the in, in the inquiry about why didn't we lock down sooner? I mean, just imagine being in a room and saying we're going to lock the country down because the the famous nudge unit was saying. And I remember being in a meeting with some very senior politicians in a in one of those sort of um, it was a conference, a very a background conference, right? In which mm. everyone was confidently saying you couldn't do a lockdown. Yeah, they wouldn't. In the people UK. wouldn't, the, wear, people it, wouldn't wear it. Right? <laughs> you know, that's how far away from reality the thinking was. Right up until quite close to the point where they went, "Wow, we need to have a lockdown. Otherwise, we're going to end up with Italy, Italy, who they were sort of slightly laughing at in February." If you read Boris Johnson's, for example big trade speech that he made in February in Greenwich about new buccaneering Britain yeah, after yeah. Brexit, right? So February, the, I don't know the dates, 15th, 16th, I think. He, in there, there's a line in which he basically implies that the coronavirus is being used as an, escape, as an excuse by the Chinese to protect their markets. That is the level at which they were treating it. Yeah. Mm. He was still shaking hands with people in hospital. That, you know, boy, you know, did, did life come at them fast? <laughs> Alex, on the public health policy side of things, away from the politics and the drama and the squabbling, what has stood out to you from the, the inquiry in the last few days? Well, I mean, I'm going to flip what Peter said and say that A, because I'm not British, and B, because I was actually outside Britain at the time. So I was, in, I was watching all of this from Greece, where I was looking after actually shielding my uh, elderly mother watching these nightly conferences with horror as everyone else seemed to be moving so much faster. And what I saw was, which is why I don't think it's a coincidence, I saw that essence of Brexit. I did see that exceptionalism, that idea that, oh, you know, we'll do things much better than the Italians. And and I, I seem to remember another thing that the idea that uh, um, th this country is much more liberal than continental Europe. And it's like, really? You think you're more liberal than the French, do you? Who basically will, you know, turn over a car and set it on fire if you change the topping on their crepe. Um, <laughs> so there was this whole atmosphere that, you know, we're going to be world beating. Mm -hmm. Yep. In this, as in all other things. And I watched that with 
horror because it was like a slow moving car crash. And you were thinking, what? <laughs> you are, look at the curves. You are clearly three weeks behind Italy. You are mirroring that, that infection curve exactly. Do something. And it was like, no, lol. You know, I, I went back, I, I wrote a long read for Byline uh, in August that year. And I went back and actually watched every single press conference in sequence and read all the notes of the uh, uh, SAGE meetings that happened in between. And there is a really particular point. There's like a day. You can mark the day when they come out at the press conference and they're ashen and it has suddenly dawned on them that they are fucked. And literally the day before they were like, whoa! Mm. And, and people died. Peter, we already know that pandemic planning took a backseat as the government prepared for a no-deal Brexit. And you've, you know, we've mentioned how the fact that they were on cloud nine over Brexit was a reason that the way they approached everything was maybe just completely wrong. But on a, on a practical level, as with everything in UK politics, it feels like, does it all link back to the dreaded B word? I don't know whether it all links back to Brexit in the sense that in, that's like saying, it, you need to ask what Brexit links back to. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, you know Brexit, Brexit didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, Brexit yeah. wasn't beamed down from Mars. Brexit was a function of a new kind of populist politics in the UK that offered very simple and deceptively simple answers to very complicated questions that the country has been facing really since the financial crisis, uh, you know, which comes down to, I'm afraid, a lack of productivity, a lack of economic growth, um, you know, a lack of wealth. And, uh, you know, Brexit was on one at its simplest level, a, you know, a simple answer to a very complicated problem. So in that sense, it does go back to Brexit. I think where, where Brexit turbocharged the problem is that once you started to try and turn that simple answer into a reality, you know, fuck business, as the former prime minister said, um, you got yourself into a real pickle. Yeah. Right. It, you know, it goes. it's not dissimilar to the pandemic in that regard, which is that, fine, let's build ventilators. Let's get Dyson and Formula One people to build ventilators. But actually, it turns out building ventilators is complicated. Well, it turns out life outside the single market is complicated. Life outside the political and economic structures of your neighborhood is complicated. Um, it was a decision the country took. But, you know, take back control. Great. You know, you get that great big buzz. And then there's a sort of moment afterwards and you go, OK, so what does that mean? How do you stand up the regulators? How do you roll over trade deals? How do you make it so that the people who move things and make things and provide jobs in this country, how do you protect the auto industry? A whole series of questions crowd in. And then when you start to get answers back from civil servants that aren't the ones you want to hear, you know, then you get into a world where the politics increasingly starts to get divorced from the operational wing of government. Yeah. Mm. And you know, that's in some ways what, what you're hearing about in the COVID inquiry. And that was an incredibly, just put immense strains on the system. And, and that created opposition between politicians and civil servants, politicians and judges and the judiciary, politicians and the constitution we saw with prorogation. It's, it's an immense kind of pressure that built up. And we're still not out the other side of it, actually. Mm. We're in a kind of truce phase at the moment. And so to that extent, I think the two things aren't completely at least unlinked. 
It's almost as if life is more complicated than three-word slogans, isn't it, <laughs> someone might say. Uh, Alex, obviously things like Dominic Comics and that's stolen the limelight because it's, you know, it's a squabble, it's a story, I, I get it. But what do you think needs more attention and highlighting that hasn't and what are you looking out for down the line as this continues? I got a sense from a lot of the people who gave evidence that um, the sort of back to work stuff and the ETA to help uh, help out stuff will become much more prominent going forward as evidence is sought from Sunak. It was very interesting to see Lee Kane explain how uh, uh, Johnson basically was torn between A, what Tory backbenchers were telling him and the right-wing press was telling him, and B, between what public opinion was, who wanted a much more cautious reopening, businesses who wanted a much more cautious reopening, and the scientists were telling him. And I just found myself thinking, in what universe are, are those things equilibrial? You know, the opinion of a of your backbenchers and the telegraph versus what all the scientists are telling you and business is telling you and public opinion. Yeah. How do those things need to be balanced? But but the reason I think it will become more important and prominent is because I think that's the bit that sticks to the current prime minister. And he keeps calling back to it. He keeps saying, look at how I behaved during COVID. I showed my compassion then. That's kind of his stick at the moment. And we're now getting hints that he resisted the furlough. He didn't want to do it at the start. And so um, I, I think this will be very difficult for the current administration. He did pretend to be a waiter for a little bit, though, Alex. So he's, he's a he really normal me. person. Isn't and he? also, he, he, uh, <laughs> you may not know this, but he delivered medicines for his mum on his bike oh. when he was younger. Yeah. Lo so, yeah. Lovely young man. He's just a, a regular guy. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You've heard him throughout the podcast. Our guest this week is Peter Foster, former Europe editor of The Telegraph, current public policy editor of The Financial Times and author of What Went Wrong With Brexit and What We Can Do About It. Not too big a question to answer then. <laughs> Peter, in... We've in... been straining <laughs> towards it all podcast, haven't we? We've been, we've been yeah, sort of going into this area. The maniac's urge has yeah. pulled us yeah. that way. Peter, in your own words, you say there's no point in relitigating the history of Brexit. We are where we are. Does it feel like it's unavoidable to do that, though? And how did you try to dodge that temptation when you were writing the book? I, I tried to avoid the temptation because I'm, you know frankly bored of it. I, I understand why those people on the very committed Remain side of the argument still feel enraged and angry and let down and vindicated by what's happened since Brexit yeah. happened. 
I, I don't think it's the way to start to fix the problem. And what I argue in the book is that the only way to do that is to move it onto an economic discussion. Now, I know that Brexit wasn't all about economics, but actually the higher paying jobs in the Midlands and the North, if you think about the levelling up agenda, the auto industry, etc., they are super impacted by Brexit, by what Brexit's done with our trade relations with our nearest neighbours. And one way to detoxify the Brexit discussion and not make it, you know, a red v blue, a remain v leave, re- unearth all that bile and vitriol that frankly paralyzed the country is to try and refocus it onto a strong auto industry for you to you and your kids to go and work in. I want the UK to have a really clear investment offer because as Alex says, you know, global investment is increasingly mobile and it's competitive, particularly at a time when governments are pouring money into attracting investment like the Invasion yeah. Reduction Act in the United States, the Green New Deal in the EU, right? The UK's piggy in the middle on all that stuff. Yeah. Global trade is in a really bad spot at the moment. If you look at you know, where the WTO is, where China is, we need to start from the position of where we backed ourselves in a, into a cul-de-sac a structural cul-de-sac as a result of Brexit. And we need to talk in a fairly dispassionate way about where we get out of it in order to generate the productivity, the income. It's not the only headwind we face by any means, but it's one of them. And there are things you can do to address it. And so that's what I try and do in the book. A lot of people writing books are sort of desperately begging publishers to let them write the book they want to. But you're actually asked to write this book, weren't and you? And I wouldn't so... have written it if they'd not asked. No. People used to say to me, God, you're the Olympic Brexit ball, right? You're the biggest Brexit ball. Why haven't you written a Brexit book? And I would say, because nobody would buy one, right? Nobody would, you know, there was no interest in a Brexit book. And uh, that's fine. You know, publishers do the maths and they look at what's going to sell and what's not. And apart from Tim Shipman's kind of knock about political stuff, you know, the kind of gossip and, and what have you, people aren't interested. Yeah. And I think, interestingly, the genesis of this book was a, a video that colleague of mine, Dan Garahan, commissioned for the Financial Times about the cost of Brexit. And it got 5 million views on YouTube. Mm. And then if you look at the polls starting to change, and even those who voted in 2019 for the Get Brexit Done election, a clear plurality say now that they think Brexit has made the cost of living crisis worse. It's made trade worse, made the economy weaker. It's made the NHS weaker. Mm. So you take in the polls, you take in the macro uh, polls with Labour looking like they're going to... Um, uh, uh, win the next election. And we know that nothing can really change fundamentally on Brexit with a Tory government because they're the authors of it and they're, and they're stuck with what they created. So when you put that together, there is, I think, you know, a window for another discussion. And that's why the publisher asked me to write the book. It won't surprise you that we are on the, the hard <laughs> yeah. remain, remain side and uh, you know, we still have plenty of grievances. But you know, going into the book... None of us ever imagined that this would go well, but was there an op a point where we can kind of pinpoint that we lost the chance for an even sort of a, a minimally damaging Brexit? Uh, you know, it's a good question. You know, you could argue, you know, that Brexit was always binary. It was conceived in political enmity. It was never going to be, you know, a vote to leave 52-48 and then there was going to be a great national conference, which is what there should have been. And all the in industry and representatives were going to get in a nice big tent and sit down and work mm -hmm. out a median. You know, I don't think it was probably ever going to happen. And because the way the EU negotiates, where you've got 27 other member states with competing interests, the way they protected the, themselves from their own internal squabbles, right, was to take a very hard line with the UK. 
right? That's the way they preserve their own unity. So once you plug those two things into the equation, it was always going to be quite binary and a quite hard break. There maybe was a moment, and I don't want to overstate this, where Theresa May's deal, if it had been backed by Labour, might, which was essentially the single market for goods, might... And I and I got in a lot of trouble on Twitter and other places for saying a plague on both their houses. Maximalist Remainers, you know, who thought Theresa May's deal was a super hard Brexit. Well, you know, you know, look at what you could have won. Uh, and 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 maximalist Leavers who wanted, you know, a no deal Brexit. Actually, the 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 extreme wings in the end just crushed the centre. But actually, maybe there was a moment. I don't know whether politically that deal could have survived. You know, she spent far too long getting there. She spent far too long being utterly unrealistic about what her options were. I don't think her civil servants helped her in indulging her in a load of fantasies that were about, remember, checkers. That was about squaring differences in the UK cabinet, not about delivering what was negotiable in Brussels. So maybe... There was a moment for single market for goods. Maybe that's where we'll end up in the fullness of time. I don't know. There'll be a lot of cost in in the interim. But if you really want me to, I think it was probably always going to be messy. We talk about how the Conservative Party has kind of turned on its head and been dragged to the right quite a lot in this podcast and everyone politically can discuss that. But when we look at the moment around fuck business, for example, was that perhaps a more fundamental shift than we gave it credit for when it came to conservative ideology. Because it seems like such a a strange thing for a conservative, the party of business, to say. And even though now we're seeing the the real dog ends of this rightward shift and this change from the rooting of conservative values, whatever they ever were, but was actually a lot more momentous than we gave it credit for at the time. I think... Because people in this country don't really understand business and because business, the voices of people who move things and make things and actually pay people's wages are pretty unrepresented in the political discussion. You know, it's amazing how few politicians actually bother to talk to or understand the mechanics of what happens. Um, You ended up in a world where people didn't understand quite how extraordinary it was that Johnson should say fuck business and what the subtext of that was, right? And what the subtext of that was, was that for years, Boris Johnson and his cohorts, you know, going back to Bendy Bananas, had peddled a narrative that they were shackled to a corpse, that single market membership was going to make us poorer and was sclerotic and was strangling the country, and that we would be more virile and freer and better off by leaving. And there was never a really very cogent economic or business case for that being the case. And so what fuck business was, was really a kind of expression of frustration when that narrative came slap bang up against reality. I mean, they continued with it and have continued with it for a long time. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the retained EU law bill, asking readers of The Sun to write in and say which EU directives they want to get rid of. Even now, right now, Kemi Badnock is running a consultation about regulation that is still about deregulation, about getting rid of regulation, whereas actually regulation is a both a burden for business, but it's also an enabler for business. It's what allows you to trade seamlessly with other jurisdictions. That's such an important point, um, <laughs> because she was making a speech today before we recorded Wednesday. And, it, you know, because I was covering both, it was su- such a a weird juxtaposition to see on in one courtroom this discussion about how we didn't do risk assessment properly, how we didn't do contingency preparedness properly. And then in another room, Kemi Badenoch saying, 
we need to be more gang-ho. Enough of this safety first and risk assessment stuff. And it was just so strange to me because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of business. Like entrepreneurship thrives within certainty of rules. Proper risk assessment and contingency planning is what allows you to take risks. Yeah. Without it, you're just a fucking gambler. You, you might as well go to a casino. Yeah, because, I mean, it is what you need to ask yourself is what was the conversation that led up to Boris saying, fuck business? <laughs> right? And the, the, the conversation was something along the lines of, he was foreign secretary at the time, actually, you know, was, you know well, it turns out, um, sorry, you know, business doesn't really want any of this stuff. It doesn't want a no-deal Brexit. It doesn't want separate sets of regulation. It doesn't want any of this stuff. <laughs> and, and, and it was almost like they said, you know, they'd gone to business and said, look, you can go wild in the aisles, guys. You can have whatever you like in the Brexit sweetie shop. And actually, they said, you know, please, can we just have, you know, a glass of water and a slice of brown bread? Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, when so, so then the next bit is, well, you know, well, fuck business. Fuck them. We're going to do it anyway. Right. That's what should have alarmed people. Yeah. It's like, well, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to ignore business. We're going to ignore the people who move things and make things. Yeah, so we're you gonna... might as well say fuck the economy, right? Well, I mean, I mean that, that's we, we just, yeah, but and, and also, you know, if you, you this goes back to what we were talking about, you know, in terms of the pandemic and the, the policy decision making, policy process making, where you think the blobs against me, they're all Remainers, they don't want that, you know, the business are against me. And what's interesting is, I think in some ways, you could say, well, the civil service, they're all the blob, they're the Remainers, they're all against me, business. Well, you know, they're just out to make a buck, right? Mm -hmm. So, so like for them, it wasn't, and actually, business stayed out of the referendum fight because mm -hmm. they'd all had their fingers burnt in the Scottish referendum. So, actually, in some ways, business could have been the kind of apolitical sounding box. They could have been the way back to a more fact based discussion. But what we got was F business, yeah. right? Was actually, this is a gut project, yeah. essentially, and we're going with our gut. Yeah. Well, your, your book, actually, the introduction contains three pages of sort of quite straightforward information about trading arrangements. There's then a lot of interesting stuff beyond that, I would say. But it's this, uh, you know, the, we have got a lot of politicians here who wanted to be kind of storytellers, but don't want to, don't want to do any sort of reading there. And I mean, do you think that anyone really, many people involved in the UK side have actually read that much and understood those trade be no, basics that you lay out? No, but for quite a good reason, right? Which was that actually people thought the single market existed like the air we breathe, right? It had grown up progressively, particularly for goods, not so much for services, since the Maastricht Treaty. And the UK hadn't had trade deal making competence that had been exported to Brussels. And so we took back control of something we didn't understand because we hadn't fundamentally had to understand it. No. Regulation was formulated in Brussels with inputs of member states, including the oversized input of the United Kingdom. And then it came back and was implemented in a national context via legislation in the UK, in, in national legislation, right? And so that pipeline, that cycle, it just happened. Nobody saw it happening. And so the politicians, who don't do detail at the best of times, I think genuinely didn't... Now, they could have picked the phone up, right? They could have asked some questions, you know, because, you know, I was a foreign correspondent, right? I mean, I, you know, I came back from years abroad end up being Europe editor, never thought I'd end up covering breakfast, Brexit as Europe editor. And then suddenly all those questions presented themselves. What are you going to do now we've left? Well, pick up the phone to people and ask them, well, what does it mean? And I think that's where you get 
back to F business, which was actually when they picked the phone up, they didn't get the answers that they wanted. And they, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were, to be fair, what would you, you know, politics is politics, right? If you just won an 80-seat majority and a referendum campaign by telling everybody, buccaneering Britain, we're going to be better off out, nimbler, stronger, etc. If you then get in a room with all the people who are responsible for the nimble, stronger bit, stronger bit and they all go, mm, it's not quite like that, you're in a pickle, yeah. right? <laughs> you, 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 I mean, I'm not the political reporter here, but I can see why they didn't run out and go, God, lads, um, and lasses, uh, Brexit thing isn't quite what we thought it was. Uh, so let's go for something a bit less low-key. And, and this is, I think, where I would very gently, I don't even want to say push back because you make this point in the book. But the, there are a lot of things that I think a change of government can bring and a lot of them are unilateral and they're attitudinal, you know, just by changing stance, just by saying we're here to listen to evidence and make policy on that basis. It, it is really quite a big shift from what we had for the last few years, right? It makes a difference. Well, I kind of agree, but I don't think people should overstate that. They shouldn't draw too much comfort that. So the difficulty about what Starmer can achieve with, okay, we want not a zero-sum relationship. What we want is a neighbourhood relationship. We want to be part of the EU in terms of security, in terms of carbon pricing, in terms of uh, uh, you know trade as well, is you still get to a problem where if you run a business and you, for example, a uh, thing that just came up, the uh, deforestation directive. That's a little directive that requires people, uh, businesses, to be clear where their soya and palm oil come from. They didn't burn down forests and kill orangutans no. for, that, for that. The UK is, like the EU, going to have a rule, although we haven't yet put it into uh, a law, that is going to have us to have the same rules. Now, if you're trading with the EU, even if we have the same rules, you still have to go to the border with a piece of paper showing that you've applied the same rules, right, if you want to play into EU supply chains. So even aligning, it's the old adage, alignment doesn't get you access. So even aligning doesn't m mean that you do away with the regulatory barrier to trade. So that goes back to investment. Is it easier, even once you've aligned, to buy stuff from Pedro in Barcelona than Peter in Brighton? And it's that constant marginal frictional disadvantage that is going to be in play and that isn't going to be removed. And that's what influences not only investment decisions, but future uh, 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 future client relationships, future uh, 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 expansion, etc. Every time, because there was a stock of relationships that were pre-invested. Our economy had grown up with the European economy inside the single market. Yep. There was a big stock where companies had funded, sunk money into their supply chains, into their factories. So I was talking to a company that makes angle brackets for trucks in, that go in, are made in a plant in Europe. His question is not that he didn't keep his contract, an angle bracket is a piece of metal. It doesn't have things like food and drink that has all these complicated stuff. He kept the contract. The question is, the next time a new model comes on the production line, where am I going to get my angle brackets from? Right? Yeah. Angle brackets are made of steel. What's the carbon content of the steel? Right. If I get them from a foundry in Milan, do I have to do all the carbon border adjustment mechanisms rather than getting them from Warwick? Yeah. 
right? And so when that decision gets made, at the margin, all of those decisions are being made all the we'll time, right? It's, the, it's what I call the stock and the flow. It's really, and it's totally unappreciated. If you think of uh, political economic shocks, you know, the 1970s oil shock, the very good Bank of England paper that I cite in, 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 in the book, they are big one-off shocks that industry, et cetera, adjusted to. And the point I was making about the structural, permanent structural uncertainty is that Brexit isn't like that. Brexit gets more complicated over time, yeah, not less complicated, right? Because the, EU's, the EU is in, yeah. you know, in, putting, introducing more and more rules and regulation. And even if we stand still, right, we're still diverging, yeah, passive the, divergence. With Keir Starmer, I mean, some of the decisions he might make politically, it would feel like maybe small wins for what will be big political losses. But is that not accounting for the fact that, as you say, things will get worse so it's kind of halting the tide what might look like a small win now actually could be something that's holding us up down the line because the the difference will become far worse if you see what i mean so so i i think there is a what i call a ratchet of divergence right the ratchet is drawing us away and that by the way is exactly when you talk to people in Whitehall, how it was designed you know, David Frost, and so people, listeners familiar with the whole question about rules of origin on the electric vehicles, yeah. which is maybe going to mean 10% tariffs if it's not affixed to it. Those rules of origin were demanded by Frost in the negotiation because he wanted a clean break. Once it became clear that they weren't going to allow Japanese and other yeah. content to make that, you know, is it 50% homemade? And if it is 50% homemade, you get in tariff free. It's designed as a ratchet. So, what I argue in the book is that there are no quick fixes here. People said to me in the book, you know, what's the big idea? And like, I'm like, there's no big idea. You're still <laughs> looking for a unicorn, right? There's no one with a magic wand here. And so what I argue in the book is, is that you've got to start somewhere. The EU aren't going to be bending over backwards, right? There's no cliff edge this time. There's no, like last time, everyone thinks about these negotiations, darkened room, they don't want a no deal, keep things together in Northern Ireland. There's none of that. There's a deal. And very little we can offer in There's return. the Windsor framework. There's a legal entity there. They have run a surplus in goods to us, mm. right? But they're not, you know, having mm. podcasts discussing Brexit in France and Germany. <laughs> <laughs> they really aren't. So, 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 but, but. They didn't even before Brexit. <laughs> but, you know, Starmer has to start somewhere, in my view, or. If you know, if if you're resigned to the fact that the ratchet is inevitable, and politically, I'm never going to get to rejoin, and you know, the, e, the, the EA's uh, single market membership is, is politically unsustainable, too much rule taking, then you better have a really serious conversation about what the UK's offer is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. What's who's paying for the hospitals? What you know? What's the economic? What's the what's the playbook here? My my last argument is the book is that that conversation it didn't take place at the Labour Party conference. It isn't taking place in the House of Commons. It isn't part of the discussion. If you listen to Sunak's speech at the party conference, it was full of absolute nonsense about what Brexit's done for the economy. Not a single... It, it passed without, men, without not mention from the political reporting of the speech. It, it's just become... You know, Brexit, if anything, has done more for our business than we would do more trading than... Yeah. Right? I mean, that's why I'm saying. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, like, if you look at that, that's how internalised the Brexit non-discussion has become. Yeah. So do you find when you, you know, you're speaking to people and reporting around this that the, the Brexit discussion is always very 
Britain-centric and not looking at it in the wider context of the fact that the EU is quite nearby and is actually quite important to talk about when we're talking about Brexit. Yeah, because that was the whole point of Brexit, wasn't it? It was to become more Britain-centric. When people talk about Brexit in a political sense, so not talking about any of the finer detail, any of the impact on business or the economy or what people in uh, France or Germany or Brussels think about it, um, it's actually more of a code word for culture wars. And I think that's what you were getting at. It's now become such a sensitive issue for both the Conservatives and Labour that they just really rarely mention it unless it's the Conservatives talking about the positives. Starmer has softened his stance on Brexit a little bit. We're hearing more conversations about working with the EU from David Lammy than we used to hear. But he has to be careful because... Mm. It's now become so synonymous with backing down and regressing for so many people who supported Brexit in the first place Mm. and what that means in terms of culture and Britain's place in the world, which isn't really rooted in the reality of what it means to have closer ties to the EU, but it's become symbolic of that. Mm. So he has to be really careful when he talks about it. Actually, now, I mean, more and more we see polling that suggests that people actually do want, they are seeing the economic impacts of Brexit. You know, small business owners are feeling the impact of Brexit. More and more people are talking about how Brexit's impacted them in a negative way. And public opinion towards it does seem to be softening. More and more people are talking about maybe we should have a conversation about what relationship with the EU looks like. But totally, it's I don't, it doesn't really mean... Brexit and all those things that that people. I, was I, I have about. a question. I have a question for Zoe. Right, I was talking to Rob Ford, the Manchester United, about Manchester United, yeah, yeah. Manchester <laughs> University uh, policy professor. I think is brilliant, and we were discussing this over the after the Labour Party conference about the polls changing. And one of the questions that was raised was if you're so if you're, if you're Stella Creasy, the European movement, Labour European movement, yeah. your argument is. Starmer needs to be clear. He's not rejoining. We can put that one to bed, but we are going to do X, Y, Z to fix the problems. Mm. And that kills this betrayal narrative. So when Starmer went to Paris, the front page of the Daily Telegraph was Starmer prepares to betray Brexit. A Brexit, by the way, which the polls suggest people aren't that happy with. They'd quite like to be betrayed at this point. Rob Ford's point was, how sticky is that sense of disappointment among leavers. So Mm. if it became a knockabout red-blue issue again, would actually those leave voters when they were polled actually say, you know, I know, I I love my Brexit, Mm. right? Mm. Because they're free to say that now because it's a kind of political non-issue. So they don't see it as a tribal political issue. But if Labour made it a tribal political issue by making it an election issue... Would they revert to the tribe? Would would everyone get back on the barricades? And and I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, I don't know the answer to the question, but I think that is, I think, what the thinking is in in the Labour top table. I think if you're a really staunch Brexiteer, and there were some people, remember, there was a proportion of people who voted for Brexit because they were on the fence and they thought, I'm going to vote for Brexit. I don't really, you know, I don't know what to do. Those people are more likely, I think, now to say, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Mm. But you're right, there are the staunch Brexiteers and often those people are the ones who see Brexit in this wider context of 
Britain has been in decline and we haven't given it a chance yet. And I think that you're right. I think there is a sense that those people will cling on to that. And some of those people, by the way, don't think when, when you say, you know, 64.5% of people think that Brexit's been worse. They don't all think that the solution is to have a softer Brexit. Yeah. Right. Some yeah. of those people think the solution is to do it properly. Right. We need more, you know, more <laughs> communism. Right. We just haven't done it properly yet. You know? <laughs> I mean, all of that is true. And still, the the reason this is moving at such glacial pace is because built into the concept of Brexit was that Europe is something that has been imposed on you from up high. And so the unwinding of that has to come from the bottom up. That's just the reality. So Starmer has to be behind public opinion all the time on ratcheting his position and significantly behind, like safely behind. He cannot be seen at any point to trying to lead on this issue because that validates the original thinking of Brexit, which is what, that there's some cabal, some elite conspiracy that will try to reimpose this on you at some yeah, point. I think that's and so, yeah. you know, it's really difficult because the paranoia is built into the project. And by the way, if Starmer wants elected, if he is elected with a hefty majority, if the polls are recent swings are right, will be the first prime minister really since Maastricht, since the single market began, to make a positive case for moving closer to Europe. <laughs> right? Not, you know, Blair didn't really do that. We've labelled a lot on the what went wrong side, but give me, as a friend, give me a little bit of hope here. Can you give me some top points on what we can do about it, though? What are the, some of the key aspects you would want to see being By targeted? the bloody book. <laughs> That's the teaser, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, so I think uh, there are no magic wands, but there are a bunch of things you can do to start the ball rolling, to say that we are having a clean break from the zero-sum uh, approach of Johnson and Frost and from the constrained approach, the limited approach of Sunak. He's laid the groundwork and then you go in and say, actually, we want a top-level agreement, a piece of infrastructure. British officials, British politicians, they're not in the room. We don't go to the quarterly European Council Summit where the other 27 leaders of Europe, the chancellors and prime ministers, get in the room every single quarter and their officials chat every single quarter deeply that none of that happens. We need to create a piece of infrastructure. Ironically, the Partnership Council that sits on top of the trade agreement was that name is left over from something that of that ilk that Theresa May envisaged. So that's the first big piece. Mm. As part of that, the UK starts to think about how it becomes a neighbourhood player in Europe. Talks to Europe about you know joining its effort to rebuild Ukraine, to arm Ukraine, to fund the European Peace Fund. There are other areas net zero energy transfer. We have geological assets in the North Sea where you can sequester carbon that the EU doesn't have, linking our carbon schemes. And then I think you start to generate a slightly different conversation. You maybe go further and start to legally align on aspects of regulation in various different sectors. And then you maybe that starts another discussion about the level playing field. I don't want to overstate how difficult, how transformative that might be. But if you're basically committing to the neighbourhood, that I think is the beginning of a platform to start to unwind the costs of Brexit. Where that leads, I honestly don't know. But I think another five years of atrophy and stasis will 
it'll just lead to a point where actually the ship will have sailed. And one of the difficulties things I think for Starmer is that none of this stuff is going to immediately transform things. And I'm sure there will be people saying to him, you're going to cop a lot of political flack for no immediate, obvious economic gain. You know, this stuff isn't going to be super easy. The EU isn't going to move super quickly. You could do mutual recognition of professional qualifications. There's a provision for that in the EU-UK trade deal, as there is in the Canada-EU trade deal. They spent nine rounds of negotiation and a year to do one deal on architects. Well, that ain't going to change the price of fish. So, but you've got to start somewhere. And I think the world looking on wants to see the UK shaking off its, you know, its Brexit funk. And part of that is Starmer making the case for the UK to be included in things like, for example, in the fullness of time, the Trade and Technology Council that exists between the US and the EU, because we're out of those loops. Hmm. You know, and when the G20, when they announced the new alternative to the Silk Road, the, the, the Chinese Silk Road, we weren't there. Europe were there. Individual European member states were there. India were there. The US were there. Right? We've got to get back in the room. And so I don't know where that leads, but you, you won't find out unless you try. And with that, that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you very much to Zoe. Thank you. Thank you very much to Alex. My pleasure. And thank you very much to our guest, Peter Foster. Thanks for having me on. What went wrong with Brexit and what we can do about it is out now. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to subscribe. We'll see you next time. Thank you to Gary Christopher and Lisa B. And loads of gratitude from me to Mark Gregory and James Wilson. And thank you from me to Matt Morell or Matt Morrell. I'll pronounce it both ways to make sure we definitely get it right. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis, with Alex Andreu and Zoe Grunewald. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Chris Jones, Eliza Davis-Beard, and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit exclusively for Patreon backers. This week marked the one-year anniversary of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, and well, from the outside looking in, it's not gone great. He celebrated buying the platform, something he only did because he was forced to by the courts by bringing a sync to their San Francisco HQ. And since then, Twitter's value has sunk from $44 billion to $19 billion. Zoe, they've seen their usership drop by over 500 million since the start of the year. But after making grand pronouncements about leaving forever, most people who use Twitter are still on Twitter. Why is that? Is it still just the kind of best terrible thing around? (laughs) The problem is so many people have been depending on Twitter for their livelihood, for connecting to other people, for keeping up with the news for so long. And... There really hasn't been a suitable alternative. You know, there's lots of things trying to be Twitter slash X now, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, but none of them really have managed to bring the people on. And I wonder if some of that is to do with the fact that 
it's taken people years to build up their Twitter mm. profiles, their followers, who they're following. To start from scratch actually feels like such a huge mm. undertaking. And it's like, why would you bother when actually everybody's still just being like, well, I'm just going to hang on a bit longer and see if anyone actually does leave. Yeah. And yeah, I think um, a lot of people have other accounts on other things, threads, mustard on whatever. But I mean, I do. I don't use it because everybody I am talking to and care about and want to know what they're thinking are still using Twitter every day. Or sorry, X. Although I'll never call it X because to me it'll all be, always did. be Twitter. <laughs> yeah, resentfully. Yeah. <laughs> That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week with our ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. 